0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Oftentimes when we we read some of Paul's letters we sometimes it looks as though he he kind of runs off on a different tangent and uh it seems like he he'll switch topics on you and and just go a direction that you didn't expect him to go and that's how it's going to appear on the surface today but actually it's going to tie in very closely with what he's been saying up to this point this church in Thessalonica was just really doing a phenomenal work in the kingdom of God they they were they were sharing the gospel as we were learned all the way back in the first letter, the first chapter that they were just on fire with the great commission and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and were telling everyone that they came in contact with that that they could find peace and freedom and a resurrected King. And through all of we through all that we've looked at and all that we've dealt with, today is going to be kind of a practical note, and it. It comes as a surprise, really, when you get to chapter three. So to kind of set the stage for what, what Paul's going to direct our attention to, I did a little research uh, because of the topic and, and studying what, what Paul is teaching here. It, it kind of got me to thinking about some things, and I did a, little, uh, did a little research. I was wondering, first of all, how many people in the United States are on Facebook, now, that's going to make sense in just a moment while I'm looking at that statistic. But did you know that there is 170 million people on Facebook? That just blew my mind. And that, that's an old statistic. It's probably, who knows, it may be up to uh, closer to 200 million now. So there's 170 million people that on a daily basis are updating their status, posting pictures, sending messages, checking in on family, friends, and you know, basically spying and stalking people at random right? But you don't do that. Y'all, y'all don't do that, I know. But there are those people that I hear that use Facebook for the whole idea of stalking old high school friends, but y'all don't do that, I understand. So I, I got the looking, and, and come to find out, um, a lot of business owners, if you own a business, you're going to be able to relate to this, are really concerned about how much time their employees are spending on Facebook. Now, we could talk about Instagram and some of the other platforms. I'm only going to focus on Facebook because, well, 170 million people are using it. And through some research, I found out that um, people in the know who've done the research say that employees are spending an average of 40 minutes during the workday on Facebook. Now, now, this is in addition to your lunch and break. So you go to lunch, you get on Facebook, check your status, check some things, post some things during your breaks. You check some things, update some things, but it's not during those times. That's, that's in addition to the 40 minutes. So, so this is talking about when you're sitting at your desk and uh, you're, you're doing those reports, uh, you uh, take a little time and you uh, check your Facebook status and see how many likes you've got on a particular post. And what's interesting is, is when you take that 40 minutes throughout the day, it may not be all at once, probably spread out through the day, uh, these same researchers found out that when you take your mind off of your job, and you check your Facebook, and you spend, let's say you spend two minutes on there, just, just updating a few things, it takes you an average of 15 to 20 minutes to get focused back on what you were doing. So it's not just the 40 minutes you're spending, it's also the extra time you're spending trying to get refocused on what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Now, I just did a little math on this. If you take the 170 million people, let's just cut it in half. Let's say that a that half of that 170, 80 million, 170 million Let's say that just half of them are working. I'm sure it's more than that. But let's say that, that half of that 170 million are working a regular full-time job, putting in 40-plus hours a week. Well, I begin to wonder, how much time does that mean across you know, 80-some million people? So I, I did a little math. Uh, you'll be interested to know that if half of that 170 million are taking the full 40 minutes a day... To, to check on their Facebook, that, that equates to 3.4 billion minutes, 3.4 billion minutes in America spent checking Facebook at work. Well, that turns into 57 million hours, 340,000 years is being spent while you're clocked in at work on your Facebook. But again, I know none of you guys are doing that because y'all, y'all don't even check Facebook when you're here at church, do you? Ooh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that. Listen, we're spending a lot of time. We're using up a lot of time. And if you're an employer and you're employing people, you know that this has become a problem for you. Keeping your people focused while they're at work. You've come up with all kinds of rules on your job site to try to keep people off of social media. You've even talked to your IT guys, your technical guys, and ladies, on how to put some things in your network to prevent people from getting on Facebook while it were, but it hasn't worked very well. It's because apparently a lot of people are addicted to social media, so much so that we would take time at work when we should be working and putting in the time for our employer. We, we tend to be putting more time on social media. What, what does that have to do with what Paul's been talking about? I mean, if you think about where we've been in these letters, Paul has spent a lot of time correcting some misunderstanding in this church. And that misunderstanding was the result of of a false teacher who had written a letter to this church and, 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 and said that the author of that false letter was Paul himself. And in that letter, there was all kinds of confusion that entered into this church concerning when Jesus is going to return. So Paul has spent a lot of time correcting the thinking of this church about what they can expect when Jesus comes back To take his people out of this world. I mean, we've we've studied some amazing things. In the first letter, if you remember, Paul says there, there's going to be a day when Jesus is going to come down into the clouds. I mean, it just sounds incredible. It sounds amazing, mind-blowing, but nonetheless, Paul told this church, that there's going to be a day that they can expect that Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a, a trumpet. There's going to be an angel that will shout forth with a loud voice. And this incredible event where the dead, those who died in Christ, are going to come out of the graves. And I told you, that is not the walking dead. It is people coming back to life where soul, spirit is going to reunite with a brand new body. And then those who are left behind will be gathered up in the clouds with Jesus, and those shall, there shall we ever be. The the reasoning or what drives that is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were purchased, you were redeemed, you became part of a family. God is your father, you are his child, and he is going to make sure that you are in his presence for all eternity, whether that be through the grave or whether that be through this miraculous event that Paul describes. But because of what Paul told them, confusion abounded in this church. So he writes the second letter, and as we've been through this second letter, Paul has talked about some equally amazing things, that God is going to pour judgment out upon the earth after the church is taken out. And through that, there's going to be this world leader that comes on the stage that is going to mislead myriads of people. And it's going to get astronomically worse as judgment is poured out. So when we get to chapter 3, it appears as though Paul shifts his attention completely away from that. But that's not the case at all. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, just to kind of set the stage for where he's going. You'll notice in, this, in these verses where Paul is beginning to close the letter out. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happening among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, when you pray, remember us. And when he says us, he means Paul himself, he means Silas, he means Timothy, he means Barnabas, he means John Mark, he means Luke, all of the of the ones who were banding together and planning churches who were either with Paul or out serving, he says, "Pray for us because what we're running into is wicked, wicked people who hate Jesus Christ and hate the gospel and Paul was being persecuted for it." So he says to the church, not all people that we've run into are faithful. Now, this had to be hard for Paul because the ones who hated Paul the most were his own brothers, Jewish men who should have recognized Jesus as Messiah, but rather their task is to destroy the church and to certainly destroy Paul. He also says this, he says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that what you are doing, you will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I love that last verse. Paul says to the church, may the Lord, now he's praying for this church. And he says, my prayer for the church is, is that the Lord will direct your hearts to the love of God. The only way that this church can continue to do what God's called it to do is out of love. The love that Christ has demonstrated on the cross. The love that they've experienced When Jesus Christ changed their life, the the love that now invades every square inch of their life, they are to then love the people around them in a way in which the world has no idea of this kind of sacrificial love. Paul says, to direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. As you know, this church is being persecuted heavily for their faith. Paul wanted them to remain. Now, when he gets in verse 6, he's going to turn his attention towards something. And what I love about the Bible, what I love is the practical nature of the Bible. Because when we read the Bible, what do we see? We see see stories about shepherds and sheep. We we hear Jesus teaching about sowing seeds and reaping a harvest. You know, God, when He wanted to reveal His truth to us, what He could have done, God could have simply said, okay, here's what I want my people to know. And He could have given us a bullet point list of all the truth and the doctrine and the theology of following Christ. He could have simply said, bullet point number one, uh, God is three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three or one. He could have said, there's one bullet point, another bullet point. My son is going to come. He's going to lay down his life for you. And he's going to pay a sin debt you can't pay through his blood. And he's going to be placed in a tomb. He's going to resurrect so that you may have life. God could have given us a bullet point list of all that he wanted to know. But you know what God chose to do? And I love this. God reveals himself through the mundane, everyday lives of people throughout these 66 books we call the Bible. We, we learn about a guy named Noah who put his faith and trust in God, and so did his family. And we see the story, the narrative of, of God directing Noah to build a, an ark to protect his family from the coming judgment. We, we see people like Moses who did not want to be out front, but yet God uses him to lead an entire nation of two million people out of slavery. We, we find Daniel in a lion's den. We, we, find, we find Habakkuk, the prophet, arguing with God about why there's so much suffering in his world. We find 12 disciples, fishermen, and tax collectors, people you wouldn't have picked to be on your team. We, we find those 12 living out their life with this man named Jesus and all of their failures and their mistakes and the good moments and bad moments. What do we find in Scripture? We find people's lives in the mundane, the everyday, and it's in those places we find the God of this universe and His plan to redeem humanity. That's why I love love God's Word. I see both failures. I see failures and, and victories. I see Men and women with flaws, deeply flawed, yet God using them. I find hope and peace in the fact that God did use those people. That God maybe can use me. Well, in chapter 3, Paul is going to get into what seems to be mundane. It seems to be that Paul just is dealing with some side issue, but in fact he's not. Because in this church, what has happened? Because of all the teaching that they've received, both good and bad, there's a segment of the church in Thessalonica that simply quit working. They, 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 they just quit. They were expecting Jesus to come at any point. So they reasoned in their mind that what point is, me, what point is there for me to, to work a job, support my family, earn an income, if Jesus is going to come back, why don't we just all quit and just kind of hang out and wait, right? I mean, it seems kind of practical. But Paul sees this as a much deeper problem for this church. Remember, Paul's emphasis is always for the church to be healthy. Why does he want the church to be healthy? So that they proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. And anything that Paul sees is going to threaten that unity, threaten the the gospel going forth, threaten uh, the, the, the church from loving their neighbor as God has loved them. He's going to deal with it, even if it seems somewhat mundane. So what should these people be doing? What should these people be doing? If if Jesus is coming back, then what should they be doing? Should they be just sitting on a hillside waiting? Or is Paul wanting to get their attention to what they should be doing? Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers. I I want you to notice that. When Paul or John or Peter or James when they take a moment and they say these words, now I command you, we need to pay attention. Those are not words to be taken lightly. Paul has a command. He's actually going to mention it twice. Paul only uses this phrase. If you look at the original Greek, he only uses this phrase five of the, four of the times. This is the fifth. And when Paul uses it, it's almost like he's saying to the church, now, I want you to pay attention to what I'm going to say because you need to start doing something very important. Paul says, now we command you, brothers. He's not speaking to people outside the church. He's speaking specifically to this church, brothers. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is Paul's authority by which he can command the church. Paul's Paul's authority with the church at Thessalonica or the church at Ephesus didn't come because Paul was a good guy or because he was a convincing speaker. Paul's authority rested in none other than Jesus Christ who called him to do the work that he was doing. He says, now I command you that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Does that not seem a little harsh? Paul says, this is the command that I have for you, church. He's got another one that's going to come up in this text. He says to the church that if there are people in the church that have have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's why he uses the term brothers. If there are people who who say they are Christ's followers, but they have fallen into the trap of laziness, idleness, then Paul says to the church that they are to separate themselves from that brother or from that sister who is now simply coasting rather than working and serving. Man, does that sound harsh to any of you? I mean, a lot of people believe that the church is supposed to be this loving environment where we just accept anything and everything coming and going, that we don't really need to be too concerned about doctrine or the way we live our lives for Christ, that, we just suppo- that we're supposed to just embrace everyone. And certainly, we are supposed to love everyone. But when you become a brother or a sister in Christ, and you begin to live out your life for Christ, there is accountability built within the body of Christ. And Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, that if these brothers and sisters continue in idleness, if they continue to just simply coast on everyone else, and live off of everyone else, that they are to separate themselves from this. Paul says, This is not what you received from me. Remember, Paul spent five weeks getting this church established. And while he was there, he taught them what Jesus said about following him. And Jesus, even when he was upon this earth, he was raised in the house of a carpenter. We everything seems to indicate that Jesus would have had the skills necessary to work as a carpenter from what he learned from Joseph in that carpenter's shop. The disciples themselves were all tradesmen, by, and that's how they supported their family. And when they began to follow Jesus, they walked away from everything to walk with this great teacher, this great rabbi. And during that time, during that time, Jesus taught them about their responsibility to work and to serve and to love. Paul says here, church of Thessalonica, you're not walking in what I taught you to walk. You're not not walking in what I asked you to do when I was with you. Look at verse 7. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Paul does this so often. Paul will will give a, a command or a teaching, and then he'll say, now notice how I lived in front of you. And he says to the church, he says, now notice how I was there. And he gives some detail. He says this, he says, when I was with you, we were not idle when we were there. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. you." Paul says, not only do I want to remind you of what I taught you, I want to remind you of how I lived. And, And as I live this out in front of you, I want you to imitate me as I follow Christ because I see that in the church, you're beginning to slip into laziness and idleness. Paul says that while he was there, he worked night and day. So at the same time he's teaching the people, discipling, proclaiming the gospel, getting a church established, he's also working at making tents. We know that Paul was a tent maker. That's how he supported himself. And he says to the church, when I was there, did you see me laying around? Did you see me at idle? Did you see me in laziness? No, you saw me busy about the work that God had called me to do. And church, what I want you to do is I want you to imitate me because the gospel is in play here. Why do you think Paul would say to this church, please don't slip off into idleness. Please separate yourself from those who are. Here's why. If you remember in the first chapter, the first letter, Paul gives this church a great commendation for the fact that they are actively telling people about Jesus. That's where Paul goes on his missionary journeys. He's running into people that've come to faith in Christ through the church at Thessalonica. Paul doesn't want that to end. And what he sees here is if this church begins to follow this model of laziness, that they're going to get into a place where they just fall by the wayside, no longer bring Jesus up, never disciple anyone, never fulfill the Great Commission. See, for Paul, For Paul, he sees the possibility of this church completely losing their witness and the influence that they've got in their community. Notice what he says here. He says that he did this. They worked day and night that they may not be a burden to any of you. Apparently, some of these who were in laziness were becoming a burden for the rest of the church. And the church is trying to figure out, how do we deal with this? Part of the church is working hard, supporting themselves, while another part of the church is simply latching on to them and reaping the benefits without doing anything to contribute. Paul says in verse 9, It is not because we do not have that right. Paul says, I have the right to request of you to support me and my Feather Brothers in the ministry. I have that right. As a fact, he did do that, the church at Corinth. If you go back and look at that letter, Paul was allowing that church to support him financially. He says to this church, I have the right to do this, but I'm not going to. Why? Well, I think one reason was, was because this church was impoverished. They were very poor. But then Paul tells us exactly why. Notice what he says here. He says, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul was looking for Jesus to return, just like the church at Thessalonica was. But when they looked at Paul's life, Paul wasn't goofing off somewhere. Paul wasn't lounging around getting his support from other people just simply because he wanted to lay around and have a long vacation. No, Paul was actively engaged in both the work of the gospel and the work of his hands in making tents. And then Paul says this, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. There it is again. So the first command was to the church to separate themselves from these who are, who are basically dragging the entire church down. But he has another command. He says this, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. My goodness, Paul, you're a little harsh there, aren't you? Just get to the point. Well, he did. Now, I've got to be very clear about what Paul's saying here because if not, we can, get, we can move to extremes on this. Paul is not saying that for a person at the church at Thessalonica who is suffering with some kind of physical debilitation where they can't work, he's not saying that, that if they are physically disabled, then they just need to get a job. How many times have I heard and how many times have I thought in my own head? I'm just being honest with you. When I see someone in need, how many times have you said this? They just need to get a job. We need to be careful. Because we don't know what's going on in the life of that other person. That other person could have some kind of debilitating disease, some kind of issue in his life or her life that prevents them from being able to work. So Paul's not talking about those folks. Paul's not talking about a widow, especially in his day, where widows were, the wives were dependent upon their husbands to a vast degree for their support. And the Bible is very clear that they were supposed to support those widows in the death of a spouse, Paul's not saying that they are to ignore the needs of widows or orphans. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that in this church, there were people who were more than able to work, but they had chosen a lifestyle of idleness. And Paul says that if they are able to work and able to put their hand to the plow or put their hand to making tents, that they should not be living off of the church if they are capable of making a living for themselves. Because if they don't, if they continue to pull resources away from the church, it pulls resources away from people who actually do need it, for people who don't need it, who need to be working to support themselves. And Paul says, you know what a great motivation is for work? Hunger. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Paul says one motivation for them to get back to work is for their pantry to be empty of food. Church, you guys give, you guys give generously to this church. You really do. I mean, you give faithfully every week. And, and I take very, very, very seriously the stewardship of what you give to this church. We, we're always going to be transparent. We're always going to tell you how money's being spent. We're always going to seek the church's guidance in that through finance teams and missions teams. We seek to do the most work we possibly can with the funds that you give us. We try not to waste anything. We have a ministry. It's, it's a benevolence ministry. If you don't know what benevolence is, it's when People in our community are are hurting. Maybe they can't make their bills. Maybe they're having to make a choice between buying food or buying medicine. And it happens every week. People are having to make choices between whether they're able to put gas in their car to drive to the job that they just got or to buy their child a pair of shoes so when they go to school, they won't be picked on. And I am so thankful to be part of a church that is known in this community to be a giving, generous church that wants to help people. That's why every week our phone rings or there's a knock on our door of somebody needing help. And we do our due diligence, we really do, to try to make sure that we're actually helping a person rather than hurting them. Let me explain. I'll give you a story, good illustration. I think you'll get this. been several months ago now i had a young man come over on a friday morning as you know the office is only open half a day and and we're not all the full staff is not here and and the we take rotation i'm here with kim and i was here that day there's a knock on the door and this young strapping young man i think he's about 30 comes in and when someone's asking for help there's a series of questions we ask right i mean we, we want to know what the need is we want to know if it's an emergency or not and this young man, he's he's down on his luck. I mean, he's in a real deep emergency, and he, he's wanting us to help because he'd heard that we help people. And he's telling me the story of how he where he is and what's happening and uh, doesn't have a job, not actively looking for a job. He had no disabilities, no physical ailments. He was a, I mean, a, he was a big guy. And um, he needed help financially. And I asked him, I said, well, what, what kind of help do you need? And he reaches in his back pocket, and he pulls out, a bill and he hands it to him and he says, this is what I really need help with. He said, this is a serious need and I really need help. And I unfold the bill. You know what it was? It was his Spectrum cable bill. This guy had 150 channels. He had the prime. I'm talking all the sports channels. He had it all. His cable bill, he was behind about 238 bucks. Now in his mind, this is an emergency. Is this an emergency? No, it's not an emergency. Um, and, and he's wanting us to pay his cable bill. I had to put my pastor face on for, for just a moment. I almost busted out laughing. I really did. I'm just honest. I almost did. I, that wouldn't be the right thing to do, but there, that was inside of me. And I looked at him. I said, there is no way that we're going to be able to help you with this because this is not a real need. And then I said something that really shocked him. I said, you do know that you can live without cable TV. He looked at me like I was from another planet. And then I said, maybe we should stop paying the cable and start focusing on some of the other bills that got you behind. And maybe we need to be looking for a job. And here's the reality, folks. If I had paid that bill for him, would that have been helping him or hurting him? I offered to you that it would have been hurting him because it would have enabled him to continue in the foolishness that he's in. I would say to you that when he gets hungry and when he runs out of cable and when his cell phone's turned off, all of a sudden, I believe, I really believe this, that work is going to become a priority. So we work really hard each and every week to, yes, help people, and we do, single moms who, who, who are about to lose the place where they live. And if you know anything about Robinson County right now, we're in deep, deep trouble on rentals. I mean, we are in a major issue. There's no place to rent, and the places that are available to rent are very expensive. So when I've got a single mom with kids who are try, who's trying her best to work through this, and she gets short on her power bill, we talk with her, and we tell her about Jesus, and we invite her to church, and yes, we help. Does that mean, we, does that mean there's times where we probably haven't gotten taken advantage of? Oh yeah, we, I'm sure we have. Even in the best that we've tried to do, we've probably gotten taken advantage of. There's probably been times that in, with the idea of helping, we ended up hurting a person. But here's what Paul says. He says that for those who are able, they should be working and supporting themselves. We have a culture in America of idleness. It seems like for a lot of people, their goal in life is simply to be on a perpetual vacation. The idea of hard work is becoming foreign, not only in our community, but across our country. So for the disciple of Christ, how, do we, how should we be thinking about work? I mean, d- does the Bible have anything to say about your labor, your work? Absolutely it does. Did you know that the first few verses of the Bible has God working? At the very beginning, what is God doing? Well, God is hanging the stars, creating the moon and the sun. He's, he's forming the earth and placing the water and the mountains and the animals. And he does that for six days. And then what does he do on the seventh? He stops. Now, it's not that God needed rest. I mean, don't think for a moment that God was tired. God doesn't get tired. If he got tired, he wouldn't be God. But, but God stops because he wants us to also stop that we work hard and then we stop. But also in that Genesis account, we see God making humanity. What, is, what does God do? God places them in a garden. And in that garden, they have a responsibility to work that garden. So if, you begin, if you're thinking that, that work is the result of the fall, it's not. Adam was working before the fall. He was working in the garden of God, keeping it and, and taking care of it. But it was after the fall that worked God extremely hard. They were kicked out of the garden. They had to go into the fields and work. And in those fields, the ground was dry and cracked. Briars and weeds began to come up in the crops. It got extremely difficult. But work was not the curse. Hardness, the difficulty of it, is what became of the fall, what came out of the fall. Paul says this in the letter to Colossians. Colossians chapter three. He says to let everything that you do be it done unto the Lord. In other words, Christians, let me, let me say this to you, that when you punch your clock, when you punch in at work, or when you show up on time to do your job, you have made a commitment to that employer to do a job. And everything that you do, whether you're teaching third graders, whether you're sitting at a computer, whether you're out here uh, digging a ditch for the city, Paul says that every bit of that is a work of worship and honor back to God. So worship is not just what we do here. When we sing songs, we hear a sermon. Work is the process by which we are working in the world because God was that first one who introduced work in the world in those six days. And then he created us in his image with the ability to work and to give back and to contribute. And did you know, person who's called in idleness, did you know that you can find satisfaction in work? Yeah, I know that sounds odd but God's wired you to contribute. God has wired you to give back and to participate. And if you're able, then God would have you to be involved. We've been created to produce. Let me also say to you that this only makes sense through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you've never put your faith in Him, this sounds very odd and out there. I got that. But it's when I put my faith in Jesus that the world began to make sense and the world of work began to make sense that, that everything that I'm doing and serving as your pastor here, as this was my full time employment, that yeah, it's kind of obvious that what I'm doing here is, yeah, serving and honoring as praise and worship. But it's not just me. If you work at a grocery store and you're stocking shelves, that's worship. So what are these people supposed to be doing with all their spare time? I mean, if, they've, if they have found a way to be idle and they're milking off of the other congregates in this church, we have to ask the question, Then what are they doing with all their time? Are they hanging out at the beach, uh, doing a little traveling? What are they doing? Well, let's just look. He says here in verse, um, verse 11, For we hear that some of you walk in idleness. You see, it wasn't just a season they were going through. It was a practice in their life. They were walking in laziness or idleness. And then notice this. Paul says, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, Paul has a a play on words there. He says, instead of being busy at work doing something, they've become busy in something else. They've become busy bodies. And that that word busy bodies is the only time... Paul uses that particular Greek phrase, and there's other instances of it in other scripture and other places, but this is the only place he uses it exactly like this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying instead of being busy about work, you're busy about other people's business. That's the play on words. A busybody. How can we identify a busybody? Well, it starts out that they don't have much to do. They've got a lot of idle time in their life. And what I have found is that when I have idle time, it's not as though I live in a vacuum. Something's going to fill my time up. And Paul says that in this church, there are some people who are filling their time. You know how they're filling their time? By going around to everyone else and getting involved in their business. Busy bodies. One way you can identify them is, first of all, they have a lot of free time. The second way you can identify them is the first words that come out of their mouth when they come to you. You're busy, right? You're you're working. You're at work, and you're doing your job. And this person will come up, and here's how you can identify them. They come up to you, and this is the first words that come out of their mouth. Have you heard about so-and-so? Check the box, okay? Here's your response, disciple of Christ. I don't have time to deal with other people's busyness. I got this project due have a nice day. They're busy about everybody else's business. they're, They're not satisfied unless they're stirring something up. They're not satisfied unless they've got the latest, greatest news and their job is to simply gossip about it because that's all they've got to do. Paul says, these are people that the church is going to have to separate from because if the whole church goes down this path, nobody's going to be about the work God has set apart for them. And then Paul says this, verse 12. Now such persons we command. There that phrase is again. So we've had it three times now, just a few verses. He commands the church to separate from those who have caught, been caught in laziness because it was going to destroy the church. The second time he says to, the, to those who have been caught in laziness, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. And then the third is, notice this. He says, To the church, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Paul can never be accused of not being practical. Paul says to the church leaders there at Thessalonica, here's what you do. He didn't give some long set of paragraphs on what they need to do. Paul says to the church leaders, go to these people, tell them to get to work, and tell them to live out their life quietly. Quietly. Not tearing down other people. Not, not, not when, when you hear that juicy piece of information. You know how it feels, right? You get that juicy piece of information about the latest gossip, and it's early. You caught it early. You're the first one to hear about it. You're pretty certain that nobody else knows in your office. So what do you do? You have a choice. You've got the choice to make. Either you turn your attention back to the work that you've got to do for your employer or you get up from your desk or go out of your classroom with the sole purpose of telling that juicy bit of information. Guess what you just did? You've aligned yourself with what Paul describes as a busybody. Keep you focused on your work. Every time you punch in, you know what you're saying to your employer? You're saying to your employer, I'm gonna let my yes be yes and my no be no. What does that mean? You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't take oaths lightly. You've taken an oath to your employer. You know what that oath was? That I'm going to give you a full day's work for a full day's pay. I'm not going to get caught up in all of the chatter that's going on in the office. I'm not going to get caught up in the work cooler, the, the water cooler conversations or in the break room and all of that. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to talk about Jesus every chance I get because your job is a mission field. I'll get to that in a minute. The damage that you're doing, to your testimony, your witness and to your coworkers, is incredible. Live quietly, earn a living. Mind your own business, I guess Paul would say. He says to this church, "If they don't get a handle on this, this is going to destroy them from the inside out." I want to give you five reasons why work is important. I've already given you one kind of up there about work is worship. It certainly is, but i gonna give you five more. First of all, work is how God provides for you. If, if you are living in a state of perpetual laziness, I have I've had conversations with people at that place, and, and they're saying, I'm just praying for the Lord to provide that the Lord would come by, and I'm being facetious here, so just bear with me, but I'm praying that the Lord will produce manna and quail and put them in my refrigerator and put bread in my cabinets and fill my jug of milk back up and provide me with a two-liter Coke, and I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to wait. And this person is completely able to work and completely able to go out and contribute and get a job. But no, they're going to sit there and they're going to wait. Well, let me tell you something. The way God wants to provide all of those blessings in your life is through the blessing of work. That's how He wants to provide that for you. And it's not going to happen through idleness. So work is how He provides. Listen to what He says in Ephesians. Paul says this to the church at Ephesus in verse 28, chapter 4. He says, quote, Let the thief steal no longer but rather let him labor with his own hands so that he may share with others in need. So the first one is work is how God provides and blesses. Number two, work fulfills God's design in us. God has designed you for this. God has designed you to tent make or to build houses or to teach children. And through that, you find purpose, you find fulfillment, you find value in that. It's something on the inside of you. That that corresponds with the way God made you, and that that God made you to contribute, not to just get by. Number three, workplaces is in the mission field. Christian, you you have an incredible mission field, and you may may work at a business where you cannot talk about Christ and keep your job. I understand that. Here's what you can do you can not participate in the gossip because you're a Christ follower. You can. Put in a hard day's work because you're a Christ follower. You can be honest when you punch the clock or when you sign in and sign out that you're putting down the exact hours you worked rather than cutting corners and cheating your employer. You can treat your employer with respect. When things go off the cliff and it doesn't go your way, instead of blowing up with anger, you handle it like an adult who's a Christ follower. And I promise you that if you will live out honesty and integrity and character among your job site, people will come to you after the job is over and want to know what it is about you. Out of nowhere, people will be coming to you with their problems at the breakside in the lunchroom, saying, "Hey, I've got somebody going through cancer. I know you go to church, and and I see that that following Jesus makes a difference in your life. Would you pray for them?" I promise you, that if you'll live out your faith. Through honesty, integrity, and character, the mission field will open wide open for you. Number four, work focuses our attention. There's an old saying, and I know you've, you've heard it before, and I've said it before, and my grandmother said it to me often. She said, uh, Idle hands is a devil's workshop. What that means is, is that if we've got a lot of time on our hands, and we're not focused on something. I promise you, the forces of darkness will put some things in your path for you to engage in. In this church, it was gossip. For you, it could be 40 minutes on Facebook while you're clocked in. Focus your attention on what you've committed to do, be a faithful follower of Christ on your job site. And then, number five, and the final one. Work teaches us submission to someone else. I know we don't like this topic. I know, I know we don't like it. Submission. My wife and I are trying to teach our kids and prepare them to be good employees someday. And to teach them to be good employees, good husband, good wives, you're going to have to come to this place where you recognize the world is not about you. You're going to have to come to the realization that when you take on a job, you have a boss. And that boss has a right to look at you and tell you what to do. And your response to that is, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'll get it done. When you took on that job, you didn't take on a place where you get the vote and determine what's best for the company. You're an employee. You may have that role. You may not. But if you don't, don't act as though you do. You're not the boss, you're the employee. If you're the boss, then be a godly boss. Treat your people with respect. Tell them what you expect of them. But here's the thing. Work teaches us about submitting to someone. And I promise you, if I've got a Christian that cannot submit to their boss, I'll also show you a Christian who's not in submission to God. The two go hand in hand. It's just playing itself out on the job site. And at the same time, you're acting that way. You are killing your testimony. You are killing your witness. You're killing the responsibility, the opportunity to have influence in the lives of other people because of how you're acting at work. So, what kind of time of commitment do we have for a sermon like this? Well, as our worship team comes down, a couple of things. One. Maybe you're the one who's always stirring up things in the office. But you name the name of Christ, and people look at you. They know you're part of this church, but yet you are causing some incredible division in that office. I have something very practical for you right here, okay? This, this is going to be very deep, Christian. For you, For those of you who are causing these kinds of problems in your workplace— I want you to really lean in close and hear what I'm about to tell you because this is profound. Are you ready? Stop it. That was supposed to be funny too. But listen, you're hurting your testimony. And I think it's time that um, we get along with Christ and ask Him what He expects of us on our job site. And I know, I know that here today we have some lost people here today. I know you've not put your faith in Jesus. You're never going to be able to understand your purpose on this earth, in your job, in your career, in your college degree that you're pursuing. You're never going to be able to get your arms around what God wants to do with that until you submit to him and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed for you, the empty tomb, all of that. You will not be able to fulfill your purpose. You could be the most wealthy person on earth. You could have a billion dollars plus. You could be the next owner of Facebook itself. And if you miss Jesus, you've missed it all. You've missed it all. Father in heaven, during this moment in time of commitment, I pray Father, that for the disciples in this room, they would look inwardly at just how they're acting on their job site. Or maybe maybe they've been able to excuse away for some time now why they shouldn't even be working. But Father, if they're able, I pray that you would bring them to this place that they understand that you've created them for this. Father, if if some of our people here at Hyde Park are known on their job side as the one who is the busybody, I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction into their heart. Father, we've all ran with that juicy piece of information. We've all been guilty at times of gossip. But Father, that's not your plan for our life, and it brings great harm to the church and to our testimony. So Father, I pray that there be people who be willing to seek your forgiveness. For the lost person, may they see that their purpose will never be lived out in this life until they start with you and submission to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.